So I had fixed myself uh, with thyroid hormone and I was doing well, but I still actually was like a sugar addict. I still had issues with carbohydrate dependency and thought about food all the time. And then I met Mark Sisson. I finally was like, huh, you know, his he and his wife are 20 years older than me and they look way better than me. Maybe I, sh- maybe I should read his book, you know? So I read his book and then um, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it is, the first wealth is health. Our guest today, Elle Russ, is an established thought leader on health and well-being. She's a best-selling author, coach, TV and film writer, and host of New York Times, Mark Sisson's popular Primal Blueprint podcast. She's written two books, including The Paleo Thyroid Solution, which helps readers reclaim their health as alumni of the world-famous Second City Comedy Theater. Elle, welcome. Excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, and I'm excited about the conversation we had uh, when you came on ours, and look forward to our audience hearing all about you and your work, and I loved your book, so Thank great you. to talk with you. Yeah, well, that was a very different world. That was, uh, that was a pre-coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> that was pre-rona. <laughs> There'll be yeah. PC and AC uh, discussion, <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into that. Well, I, I've had a wide range of guests on the show, but I'm pretty confident you're the first accomplished sketch comedy writer uh, <laughs> that I've talked to. So... How, tell me a little bit how your career got started. You know, I grew up always loving Saturday Night Live. And uh, I grew up in downtown Chicago, which is the home of the famous Second City Chicago, where they do, you know, sketch yeah. comedy and improv. And so I would go as a kid and I was obsessed with SNL and I was obsessed with like David Letterman, like very young age, like people just weren't, <laughs> my friends weren't really into all that stuff. <laughs> and so I loved all the comedy and I, I really dreamed of doing it, but always thought like a lot of people like, ah, that's unrealistic. Like nobody does that, you know what I mean? Or how do you do that? Right. And so I never really gave it many thoughts until years later when I was in the corporate world and I got injured and actually got permanently disabled my arms from repetitive strain injury in the corporate tech world. And I had to find a way to use my voice. And I decided, well, you know, I'll go back to sketch comedy (laughs) because that's what I love to do. And I can use my voice. So Went back to Chicago for a couple of years to do the Second City, uh, started a sketch group there, did a show at the Second City, and then I came out to LA to pursue that. And when I came out here, the Second City in LA is just wasn't really a theater that was mm, on the level of doing that uh, where I wanted. So I went to Acme Comedy Theater, which uh, had been has been around for 20-something years, and performed sketch comedy and improv like over 100 shows. So I was at the theater every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, either rehearsing or doing a sketch comedy and improv. And so it was a lot, you know, I own a lot of mustaches and wigs. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so we did all these characters. I do a lot of dialects as well. So it was just really, really fun. And uh, that actually is what kind of turned me into becoming a writer writer. So was it, all, was it your dream to be on SNL as a kid? Yeah. Well, you know, and I have auditioned for Mad TV. You know, these auditions are really interesting. They make you do three characters and two impressions, but then they had me come back and do like double that for one of the auditions. I remember I was like, oh my God. So, uh, and it's really fun. So yeah, it was kind of my dream to be on SNL, but in general, I mean, after that, so many sketch shows came up, like there was Mad TV and then, you know, there's other things that have come out since like Key and Peele and, you know, all this other stuff. I still do it occasionally if a friend calls and is like, hey, I'm doing this video, you want to be in it? 
it's literally, I would do it for the rest of my life. I love it. I just kind of got a little bit worn out on driving to and from the theater all the time. And, you know, you kind of get burned out on live shows, but um, that's what, you know, so I was initially a comedy writer and then wrote sitcoms and stuff like that and then branched out and accidentally became a health writer, subject expert in that arena and wrote a documentary and a bunch of other stuff. So I'm still in the game. I have a um, children's animated series that's uh, sort of being shopped around town and still always in the mix. But yeah, a sketch comedy really spawned it all. And Second City is one of the, or the Chicago, at least, is one of the biggest feeders for SNL, isn't it? It is. So Tina Fey was like, uh, you know, I saw her in shows when she was just like a nobody performer and before she became head writer on SNL, Rachel Dratch, all those people, so many people you've seen on Mad TV come from Second City. So yeah, it really is kind of a turnout factory uh, for SNL, for sure. All right. So this is what I want to understand. The comedy world is not really known for healthy living um, Hmm. and you've existed in both worlds. So how did you, how did you make the shift uh, from comedy to focus on on writing and health and coaching i think like a lot of people you know it was never an intention it was accidental so i was writing like tv and film but then i got struck with hypothyroidism and it debilitated me made me fat and what happened was and the reason i became a subject expert in it is that 99 percent of the doctors out there are uninformed so i live in los angeles i live in the best city for doctors right i went to celebrities who had written books i went to their doctors in beverly hills i went to everybody and nobody nobody could figure it out nobody tested me properly everybody failed me and or hurt me and i had to at one point say i'm taking my health into my own hands and i actually did it myself i hacked it i bought my own thyroid hormones i dosed myself back to health i used doctors for blood work and then wouldn't listen to anything they had to say and i had to really become my own doctor which is freaking ridiculous i have a philosophy degree and i'm a comedian <laughs> like you know like what what kind of world so i had to do it though and so it really was the perseverance of me figuring out my problem that led to me become an expert in that subject and so people would come up to me all over the world and, and anywhere I'd go, I'd be somewhere and someone would bring up their thyroid problem without me prompting it. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I'd help them. I'd tell them what tests to get. You know, I'd communicate with them. And my friend was like, you know, you should write a book about this. And I was like, yeah, maybe one day, whatever. Because, you know, again, I just health wasn't a thing, even though I was into it maybe myself a little bit. I wasn't interested in becoming a health coach or anything like this. But when I met Mark Sisson uh, years later. I actually had solved my second bout of hypothyroidism and I was living in Malibu and I began working for Mark Sisson, who's the New York Times bestselling author of the uh, Keto Reset and Primal Blueprint. He owns Primal Kitchen Foods, multi-million dollar amazing company. And he hadn't started the company yet, but at the time when I started to work for him, he's just started a publishing company. And as I went paleo primal ancestral, I realized this really important connection between that and the thyroid system in our body. And when that light bulb went off, I felt like a lot of people, and I'm sure you did with your book, you feel compelled. It's not a logical decision. It's I have to get this information out. And so I pitched the book to Mark and he said, you know, I've been wanting to do a thyroid book because this is such a huge problem. And so we did it. It became a bestseller. And of course, I'll talk about thyroid till the cows come home. And I still coach people all over the world. It is something that, of course, I'll always be passionate about, but it's accidental. You know, I never meant to go there, you know, and I never thought I'd write a nonfiction health book. Right. Well, necessity is the mother of, of invention, right. but I'm curious. So if you go back, so I mean, and I've heard this story a lot. Uh, one of my colleagues has a wife with a very similar story around autoimmune and just getting told by everyone, oh, well, just take this pill and mm-hmm. just 
quitting her job and solving it. And now that's her job is actually helping other people with it. So like, what were people not, not to get too into the weeds, but like you go to these doctors mm-hmm. and, and what would they say? They just didn't know what it was, or they were saying, Oh, take this pill or have surgery or like, what were you getting? No answers. Or were you getting things that just were like too drastic? So these are the classic objections that you'll get from an uninformed doctor. So for example, yeah. they'll, they'll, first of all, they'll take the wrong test. They'll take a test from 1973, which is not the way to assess a thyroid properly. And they'll say, nothing's wrong with your thyroid. Just work out more and eat less. So a lot of hypothyroid patients get blamed for having like some closet eating disorder or not being honest about it because they're rapidly gaining weight. When you have hypothyroidism, meaning low function, subpar, you are in a state of almost zero metabolism. So you get fat no matter what you do. Bob, you yeah. can work out five hours a day and eat a grape. You're still going to get fat and bloated. So doctors will discount you or they'll be like, oh, you're depressed. Here's some Prozac. The Prozac will work for three months, but then it won't because they never got to the root. You say, oh, you're, you know, your lipid panel looks bad. You know, Watch your cholesterol. It's the thyroid. Oh, you have high blood pressure. Do you? Or is it insulin resistance because that was spawned by the thyroid problem? So we treat the symptom and not the the cause. Yeah. So it's a patchwork thing. But then here you go. Let me just talk about the ego of doctors. And this is a great example. I um, (laughs) I went to a doctor one time with a patient who didn't speak English very well. She worked for the company, and I said, uh, "Hey, listen. And here's the thing. Anyone listening, you don't even need to know the test I'm talking about. It'll just." be very exemplary of ego and doctors. So I went to the doctor with this patient. I said, listen, I really think they have a reverse T3 problem. Can you please check and test her reverse T3? She said, you know what? I'm not going to have anybody dictate how I practice my medicine. And I said, I'm not telling you how to practice medicine. I said, I'm just asking you to take one test. Can you just take the reverse T3 test with this patient? And she said, fine, but I don't know how to evaluate it. And I said, I'm sorry, did you just patronize me about asking you about a test that now you're telling me you know nothing about? Bob, that would be like me saying, do not see the last Star Wars movie at all. And you're like, oh my God, was it terrible? And I'm like, I don't know, I never saw it. Uh, well, I shared with you before this call, you know, I, I had um, a couple of years ago, I was dealing with this just eczema that came out of nowhere. And I, I so much lesser extent, but I, I, it came out of nowhere and that was really, really bad. And so I tried all aspects of this from, you know, nutritionists to dermatologists to allergists, to, you know, you you name it. And 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 I saw a little bit of this where and one thing I'll say, I saw the doctors who just believed in their discipline and their pill and their approach, which was very much about not what's the cause of it, but how do mm-hmm. you know, how do we get rid of it? Like you can put a steroid on eczema and make it go away, but like you can't really live doing that every day because it's got some long-term implications. Right. But I also saw uh, the ones that were more integrative or at least, at least willing to be respectful of other approaches or, or look at what the other doctor or discipline said. And, and then the ones that were just totally dismissive. Uh, and mm-hmm. it was interesting to me how in 2020 you could live in this Western, you know, medicine world and just not being willing to think outside of, of any of the approach. I mean, a couple of times I was told by people and, and then I actually had some related heartburn that I also cured and it's a much longer story. But I, I mean, the approaches of, well, you just, you know, use this steroid for life or you'll mm-hmm. just take this Prilosec for life. And I'm like, but this came out of nowhere and that can't be the solution. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. and that's the thing. Like I had a, I had a doctor once, there's so many great doctor stories, but I had a doctor once who I thought was cool and knew what was up. And I came to her and I realized I had two bouts of hypothyroidism in a decade. And I realized what the second one was. And I went to her and I said, this is what it is. 
this is how I have to treat it. And I'm standing in front of her and I'm so fat at this time that um, I literally, my bra looked like one of those like Playboy bunny, like bikinis where it just covers your nipples. Like that's how fat I had gotten that my bra looked like. And I'm standing in front of her. I'm like, look at me. I'm like, look at my body. And I'm telling her, I'm trying to explain to her what's going on. And she literally throws her hands up and she goes, oh, oh, this is too complicated. And I said, I'm sorry. So the MCATs to get into medical school weren't complicated, like organic chemistry problems were not, like, this is complicated. <laughs> like, I just, you know, so you just, I was on my own and left in the dust twice after literally seeing and communicating with over two dozen endocrinologists and specialists yeah. in Los Angeles. And that should not have happened. And what I realized is that 99% of the doctors are uninformed. They are steeped in outdated protocols from 40 years ago. They're not up to date. So who is? Well, the best doctors usually are functional medicine doctors, doctors who you can look up orthomolecular medicine, functional medicine. These are the doctors that are going to look at a whole body approach and do way more in-depth testing to figure out what's up other than just doing some CBC and being like, you're fine. So for example, after all of this was over, I had fixed myself twice. I'm writing the book, but I realized that there's some things that you know probably aren't right. I go to the doctor on my book, a functional doctor, and I said, you know, you've been so great with me on the book. I'd like you to be my doctor. He takes a bunch of tests and he's like, oh my God, you could have a stroke or heart attack. Uh, we need to do A, B, and C. And it literally was just me taking a supplement for six months that prevented me from having a heart attack or stroke at the age of 42. And if I had taken the regular CBC with a regular doctor, they'd have been like, you're fine. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, this is the reason to go get a full overhaul. Now, granted, I was in a scenario where I had been in a disease state for many years, so things are going to pile up, right? And then that's why I went to him and said, you know, probably need to clean out some stuff that's happened all these years. But so that's unfortunate. And then actually recently, so, you know, we all have, you know, in the United States, if you have insurance, I go to like my dummy insurance doctor, right? My Western whatever doctor to just do the, you know, annual whatevers. So I go into her and I meet her for the first time and I'm very honest. And I say, look, I, I wrote a book about uninformed doctors pretty much. Like I just got to be honest so with you. Offend you. Yeah. I don't want to offend you, but here's my book. But I said, listen, I deal with a functional doctor on the coast that does not take insurance and he wants me to get these tests done. And I give her the list and I say, would you be okay with taking these tests and ordering them. And she looks at the list and she says, yeah, I'm fine with ordering these. I just don't know what some of them are. Now, here's the thing, Bob. Great. But did that mofo after my appointment go look it up and learn what those things were? I guarantee you she didn't. I guarantee yeah. you she didn't. And she should have. So that's the kind of thing. It's like, well, I don't know what these are, but I'll take them. Well, you know, if you don't know what they are and you're a doctor and another doctor's ordering them, you might want to go yeah. back and Google this shit later. Like, so that's the kind of stuff you're going to run against. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. 
Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, it's interesting, right? This is like a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, right? Mm -hmm. That, oh, medical Mm -hmm. school is done. It's an encyclopedia. I learned it versus there's new knowledge, new ways of combining knowledge. Like if people actually thought like that, you'd never have a new drug discovered, right? That's right. And that's where functional doctors are different. They're going to take a large, and they're more expensive. They're going to spend an hour and a half with you versus their five, 10, allotted minutes. And will you, will you, will you actually, I, I know this, will you just explain what a functional doctor is for everyone who, who may not know what that means? Sure. Well, you know, functional medicine doctors are, well, they have deeper training, but what they really are is they're looking at the whole entire system and how it relates to each other. So like you said, you know, you go to a doctor, like I have eczema. Okay, great. Here's the patchwork operation pill you take to fix that symptom, but they're not looking at the root. And that is what functional doctors are about. They're looking at the whole system, the root, and also nutrient optimization and how to make everything's everything more optimal. So just because something's within range on a test doesn't mean it's optimal in the range, right? So you could have a vitamin D of, 20 and the range is 0 to 100 or 30 to 100 and you maybe it's 31. And since it's in range, it's not going to get flagged, but that's not an optimal vitamin D. It should be between 70 and 90. You know, So again, these are doctors that understand these things and how important they are. For example, many years ago when I was suffering and went to a dumb doctor, I had learned it a little bit on my own and I said, oh, can you test me for B12? And he like laughed at me. It, like patronizingly, like laughed. Seems like you don't pick good doctors. You know, <laughs> well, I know, went to it. No, I mean I've been to a lot of them. Yeah. So he like laughed in my face, and I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, and I'm so I'm so upset. And uh, turns out I had a B12 deficiency. You know, turns out that doctor I went to, where I forced her to take the test, turns out I was right. The the patient had exactly what I suspected. She had a reverse T3 problem. So I shouldn't be right. <laughs> you know, I don't have an MD. I shouldn't be <laughs> right, but. Oftentimes I am, and it's only because I've done actually more investigation on this subject than a lot of them have. So bottom line is this. If you've been diagnosed with anything, I don't care what it is, you better become your own expert. You better learn everything you can. If you think you're going to go to some Harvard, Yale MD and be like, please save me, here's my health in your hands, it's not going to happen. And you're likely going to be taking five steps backwards for every one you take forward. Unless you learn it about yourself, you may learn something that'll help you help your doctor help, you know. And so it's really important to be your own advocate, but it's also important to get educated. But often we want to run to these experts and just say, please help me, save me. I mean, that's what we think they're there for. And I had the harsh lesson and that's often not the case. Yeah. And, you know, the example I've always liked about trying to understand functional medicine, the difference is 
is if you have three people that come to you and have headaches, right? The, the pure Western view would be just give Tylenol to all of them, right? But the, the first one might have a headache because they're dehydrated. The second one might have a headache because they're allergic to gluten and have been eating it. And the third one might have a headache because they have brain cancer, right? And, and a Tylenol might, <laughs> is not the solution to any of those problems. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's the health thing. And that's what I have to say on that subject is, you know, and, and if anyone's suffering out there, you don't even have to buy my book. I have a free thyroid guide right on my website, lrust.com. It tells you every test to get taken. It tells you how to suss out the knowledge of a doctor by just calling and asking questions to their nurse and, you know, where to find a doctor and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I provide a bunch of free information for people to get on the right path because I spent $15,000 that I didn't have as a broke actor back then trying to fix this and it was wasted. It was wasted. And well, you know, not in the long run. I'm really glad I went through it so I can help other people, of course. So yeah, it is a growth mindset. So here's the thing, you know, the doctor on my book, Dr. Gary Forsman of Middle Path Medicine, he always says, you know, like when you're in medical school, you're geeking out, you're excited. You're like, ooh, how do I, ooh, you know, I want to like solve this problem. And then they lose that luster at some point. And you need a doctor that's still a geek who's geeking out on this shit. You know, I mean, that's the doctor you want. And a doctor who's going to listen to you who might read an article you bring in or, or listen to what you have to say and really hear you. So, you know, unfortunately, like you said, a lot of doctors are like, well, how could I have spent all this money and spent 10 years of my life and gone to Harvard and not know everything I know? And this woman with Google is asking me these questions. <laughs> right, exa- right. And they get offended, but that's not the, as you know, that's not a growth mindset. <laughs> that's not, you know, that's just ego. So again, they are steeped in ego and the higher the specialty, like endocrinologists, the more in ego they are. And so when another doctor requests some, some tests, the doctor will be like, well, uh, you know, they get offended. Like, why would this other doctor ask to get more tests that I haven't taken? It's like, where, where's the patient in all of this? Right. Right. So yeah, that happens a lot, unfortunately. So you wrote this book, The Paleo Thyroid Solution, and, and this is the number that kind of stag- it was staggering for me, which is directed at the 200 million people worldwide, worldwide. Yeah. who have thyroid disease. So when you're owning this for yourself, how did you figure out that, that thyroid was the problem? And then how did you figure out and why is paleo the solution both for the thyroid issues you were talking about, but also much bigger solution from a health standpoint, from your perspective? Okay, so here's what happens. Your thyroid goes down, but then what happens is you get all these other symptoms of other things, which then the doctors are going to try to patchwork, right? Like, oh, you're depressed. Here's Prozac. Or, oh, here, oh, you know. So um, what finally helped me was speaking with fellow patients online in a free forum, online in a Yahoo group. And they were on their free helping other people figure it out. And they kind of led me in the right direction so that I got the proper test. When I finally got the proper test, it was like, oh, okay, thank you very much, everybody, for the two years I just wasted suffering with all of these issues. Um, Now I know that this is it. And once I knew it was it, I knew that all those doctors had failed me. They all tested me wrong. And I knew at that point I would have to do it myself. And so I did because I really only trusted myself to fix it. And through the guidance of some fellow patients online, I was able to really help myself and figure out some of these things. And then later on with the paleo primal, so I had fixed myself uh, with thyroid hormone and I was doing well, but I still actually was like a sugar addict. I still had issues with carbohydrate dependency and thought about food all the time. And then I met Mark Sisson. I finally was like, huh, you know, his, he and his wife are 20 years older than me and they look way better than me. Maybe I should, maybe I should read his book, you know? So I read his book and then, um, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And 
the difference was staggering. Like I dropped from 100 micrograms of my medication down to 50 and then down to 25 and then lower. Um, and I still take a, a very little bit of thyroid hormone, but a lot less. I finally was able to lose the weight and burn the fat. So, you know, you gain fat oftentimes when you're hypothyroid and um, out of your control. And so then it's like, well, how do you lose the weight when you get out? And any other paradigm will kind of still increase the carbohydrate dependency. So a high fat, moderate protein, low carb paradigm, which is paleoprimal ancestral, is really the ultimate in glucose management and adrenal management. And that's why it goes hand in hand with how the thyroid works and how thyroid hormones get metabolized. Not to go too full into the weeds on that, but that was the connection I made. So it's not just a gimmick like, oh, you got fat because you were hypo, do the paleo diet and you lose weight. That is part of it. But here's the other part. There's two autoimmune forms of thyroid issue. One is Graves' disease, which is hyperthyroidism, meaning yeah. overactive. That's more rare. The more common one, the 200 plus million people in the world, that is uh, hypothyroidism, underactive. That's where you need to take the synthetic hormone, right? Well, it's, it's, it's somewhat, it's bioidentical. It's yeah. synthetic, but yeah. Well, here's the thing. Not always. Sometimes diet does fix it. So for example, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune form of thyroid disease. So like type one, where like the, uh, the immune system makes a mistake and it starts attacking the thyroid or type one diabetes, it starts attacking the pancreas or rheumatoid arthritis. It starts attacking the joints. MS starts attacking the myelin sheath around your nerves. Okay. So every auto or eczema, right? Starts attacking your skin. So every autoimmune disease, right? We know is triggered by gluten and grains often, often. And particularly with Hashimoto's because there is the protein and gluten kind of mimics thyroid tissue. And so the immune system will start attacking the thyroid. So for example, if you had Hashimoto's and you were doing terribly, you would go on an autoimmune protocol or a paleo autoimmune protocol diet, which is a little bit stricter form of paleo, and that in and of itself can fix it. So sometimes diet can actually fix it if you remove these offensive foods. You're removing the glutens, the grains, the dairy, you're removing the canola oils and all the junk, and you're turning yourself over, you're switching your genes to become what our DNA of us as humans, which is being primarily fueled on fat, not glucose. How do we know this? Look at the US. Every commercial is for glucose monitoring medications. The type 2 diabetes epidemic is out of control. How did we get there? They ate themselves there. Unbeknownst to them, I'm not blaming them, I also was insulin resistant at 1.2. But as you know, metabolic dysfunction in our society is terrible. Talking about corona, why does obesity have a horrible effect with this. I, yeah, I just saw it was the number one correlator to death. That's right. right. And that's because obesity at its core is an underlying major inflammatory uh, situation that can really ignite. It's not going to help you in a situation where your immune system needs to come to the rescue. So obviously, I believe in a paleoprimal ancestral paradigm for everyone. It is like, look, Bob, you've never seen somebody feed a ribeye steak to a horse ever. Nobody would do that because that's mean because DNA of horse is its own thing. That's why it looks like it does. A cow can consume tons of cellulose because they have four stomachs. We can't. Our DNA expects of us to eat a low carb 
paradigm. And also our bodies are not meant for some of these foods that are just really offensive and inflammatory. So everybody can just help themselves by cleaning themselves out, do a whole 30 paleo primal kind of paradigm. But it's really important for people who are either on thyroid hormone replacement right now or trying to fix a thyroid situation because you are really putting your body in the proper dynamic of what it was designed and meant to do based on literally our primal blueprint. I have a question for you about about sort of green and and glucose and and gluten. Is it actually the gluten, or is it actually what we have done to wheat and and Roundup and that sort of stuff? Because I, I hear this story a lot where people people go to Italy and you know they have gluten intolerance or celiac, and they actually have no issue like eating the more ancient grains. Yes, I've heard that too. And I think that that could be like, right, like they're, they're mulling the wheat out of the backyard, you know, in Italy to make the pasta. Like there's obviously a lot less processing. Yes, you're right about all of the pesticides and things like that, but also grains have anti-nutrients in them too. So whenever people are arguing the fiber standpoint, it kind of is outweighed by how it can prevent the lack prevent the absorption of nutrients. And also just gluten is offensive for a lot of people. So let me give you an example. There's a celebrity personal trainer named Holly Perkins and her whole entire life, she was on like antidepressants and she was like 11. Okay. So she had the story growing up like, oh, this is just you. You're messed up. Your brain's not right. Like, you know, whatever. They keep putting her on these antidepressants. She goes, at the age of 40, she finally just did some extra testing with a functional doctor. And they realized she had a non-celiac sensitivity to gluten and to dairy, to grains and dairy. She quit both of those and she was off of antidepressants within a year. So imagine that, like you're in your 40s and you're going, oh, it wasn't me. Something's not wrong with me inherently. Like that's the story that's put upon you. Yet it was literally just these two offensive things she had to remove. What a game changer. What a life changer. Are you kidding me? Like, so, you know, this stuff is worse than worth investigating. And most doctors don't know about nutrition. So again, you go into your doctor and you're like uh, your HbA1c, your hemoglobin A1c, which is the sort of, you know, like type two detector. And let's say it's up to 5.7. By the way, that's insulin resistance. So you want your HbA1c to be 5.2 or below. So if it's at six, you've got type two diabetes. 5.7, you're approaching type two diabetes. Most doctors will just be like, all right, well, here's a pill and let's watch it. Right. No, they should be like, yo, you need to go on a low carb diet right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right now. But right. They don't give health advice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So then these people suffer and they don't know. And then next thing you know, they lose their limb because it has to be amputated. So again, this is the importance of self-educating yourself about a diagnosis and um, also, edu- you know, nutrition. So can you compare and contrast for me? And then, and then I want to switch to talk about your new book, but because I hear similar things from people about both uh, in terms of impact on them, but vegan versus paleo. All right. Well, here's the thing. So before BC, before Corona, <laughs> when, I, when I was uh, at my gym in the sauna, there was a woman who I used to swim with and I knew she was a vegan. She was trying to convince me one time that I was awful for eating meat and that was a rough conversation. So anyway, long story short, she comes into the sauna after swimming and she rushes in and she's like, she can't breathe. She's like, I can't catch my breath. I don't know what's wrong. I can't, I can't catch my breath. Like every, every lap I take, like I just can't get air. I can't get my breath. And I just look at her and I go, you're a vegan, right? She goes, yeah. And I go, great. When's the last time you had B12? And her mouth dropped. And she was like, oh my God, you're right. I haven't been taking it. It's been a really long time. Then I see her the following, like two weeks later at the gym and she comes up to me. She's like, oh my God, thank you so much. You have no idea. I feel so much better. Okay. So 
If you're a vegan, <laughs> that's fine. That's a choice. But just know that you're making that choice against your primal DNA as a human. And if you do that, that's okay, but it takes extra precautionary measures like the importance of B12 and amino acids and other things you're not going to get because you're not eating meat. Now, I have most of my life, I've seen where a vegan lasts about 17 years until stuff really starts to fall apart. I know a vegan who has to hold her nose and eat turkey because she still is disgusted by everything having to do with animals, but she has to in a medicinal way or she's going to run into health issues. So it's a choice, but it is a choice against your DNA. And so if you're going to do it, make sure you're doing it right. That was helpful and concise. I like it. And also on that note, don't ever try to convince anybody that somehow that is inherently our nature as a human. So if you make that choice, that's great. But to proselytize that somehow that is how we are meant to be as humans is absolutely wrong. And it's just not in science. It's just absolutely against science. So I don't, I, I have vegan friends, like I don't mind. But if you're out there trying to push that we are meant to eat this way, that is wrong. And listen, this is where I, I go on this forever, but talk about climate change and things like that. They are not accounting for pastured farms. You know, when you talk about the methane production, you're talking about the cow feedlots, the side of the five freeway that look like nuclear disaster waste zones with muddy, you know, it's a disaster. That's the meat that's causing the problem, not the meat I eat that's pasture raised, grass fed and roaming and living its life. People say, oh, I wonder why is there no antibiotics? Why does it say no antibiotics on this package of meat? And it's like, here's why. Because so if you have a cow that is being fed grains, that's their non-native diet. That's not against their DNA. They're supposed to be roaming around eating grass. So you feed them grains, they get sick. Now, what do they need? Antibiotics. Well, pastured animals have their own immune system. They don't get sick. So this is that's that argument. So again, a lot of these things are skewed when people talk about this. And often the movies and the vegan propaganda movies, you can shoot holes through every single one of their claims if you just take one Google search. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. All right. Well, I'm guessing your comedic background, I can see more direct connection. Well, we we know to your first book that was solving a personal problem. Your second book, uh, which came out last year, is called Confident as Expletive. We'll leave it as that just so we can play in certain countries on this podcast. Sure. Tell me a little bit about the focus of the book and why you decided to write that one. You know, throughout my life, I have noticed that, and maybe you have too, and other people listening, which is you notice that you attract a certain theme of people to you sometimes. And I noticed that the people I attracted into my life were 
always looking to me for like the pep talk on like, how do I go ask for the raise or how do I declare my worth? How do I speak up to that bully at work? Or people would always call me for these things that really were things that required confidence. And that may sound pretty pedestally. So I want to clarify because it's not as if like, oh, I'm this oracle on the mount and they're coming to me for this advice. I learned that, oof, confident people have pitfalls. And I learned those through watching these people. They had a much better ability to receive, to accept help, to be vulnerable. They had more diplomacy, often really highly confident people who are alpha are very quick on the send, right? Write that email, press a send, and then you're like regretting it, you know? So the whole think before you speak thing. So they're more diplomatic. And these are the things that were complimentary in me finding like I needed to work on. But this is what I noticed. And what I also noticed is that this is what people want more of. And this is what's holding people back from getting what they want, period, end of story. You, from the bedroom to the boardroom, you're not going to get what you want in life unless you speak up. And this is not about a book to say, hey, go become a public speaker. You can be a public speaker and talk to 100,000 people and then you get off the stage and you can't even talk to your neighbor or have a conversation with your, your loved one. That's not confidence. That's just performance confidence. So that's not what this is about. Confident as F is about inside and outside all encompassing. You can have self-esteem, but no confidence. And you can have some confidence with a lack of self-esteem. And this is about inner and outer. And so at the end of the day, what is confidence? It's really like your belief in your ability to prevail in this world, to prevail at a thing. And I think the one regret a lot of people will have on their deathbeds is wishing they would have said that or spoke up or done that, et cetera. Yeah, the, the person they never asked out, the, it's all the stuff they didn't do, right? It's That's never right. the stuff they did do. That's right. And the thing is that it's not a fixed characteristics. It's not this right. fixed anchored quality within you. Like, so your levels of confidence, they're, they're always the sum of the thoughts you think and the actions you take. So it's not really like reflective of your actual capacity to succeed at something, but it's more reflective of your belief and your ability to prevail in general, right? Or at a specific endeavor. So since you can change your thoughts and actions, confidence and self-esteem is within everyone's power. I have seen 180s. I've seen people who are so debilitatingly shy that they can't even talk to like a Starbucks barista. They had to hire a social coach to go out and help them talk to like the person working at the record store or whatever. Even if you're at ground zero, it's possible. Most people aren't there, but they still need more. So for example, you know, I heard a PhD who's really smart last year. I overheard her say to someone, you know, the thing is I really know my stuff. I just... I struggle with confidence. Well, then you're not going to be able to get your vision and your dream or your message out right. to the world, are you? So, you know, this is just a really important quality. And, and people will say, well, I'm really confident already. Do I need your book? And I would say, yeah, because we have pitfalls and you're going to see that through the stories in there. You're going to go, okay, I see where I need to work on that. <laughs> like, I get it. So what are some of the trick? I'm guessing some of this does come from acting and I've been to a second city training, so I'm guessing you do pull from some of this, but what are, what are some of the tricks uh, or tips or practice things that, that people should do who know they have to develop in this area? You know, if you do tips and tricks, then that can be an acting as if, and that can be pontificating confidence, which sometimes you need. For example, if you've not been confident and you've got like a horrible boss who's always yelling at you and you finally want to speak up, look, that's not going to be comfortable the first time. It's just not, okay? (laughs) Like that's going to be awkward. It's going to feel gross and you are going to have to just act as if and go through and do it. It's going to be awkward. Um, And then it will get less awkward over time. So there are moments for that. But here's really what I'm 
trying to impress upon people. The book is all about scraping the barnacles off of different areas of your life to get to the point where you're confident. So what does that mean? Well, that means getting rid of some parental garbage and some stories that might have been imprinted on you that are affecting your life and your confidence now. It's looking at who are you hanging out with, toxic people or downers. And also, are you being a downer? Are you having downer thoughts? That's contributing to your lack of confidence and really not down with other people's confidence, which I'm not right. cool with either. And so getting rid of shame and shame disables confidence. So there's, I t- sort of take the reader through like through stories, through real life applicable stories. I mean, the one thing that bothers me about self-help or, you know, motivational books that I read is I'm always like, give me an example in real life. You know, so when I was a philosophy major, I'm reading all this heavy stuff. I, w- I wanted to be like, can someone just give me like one real life example where this applies, where I can, you know, like, apply this like and so that's what I wanted to do through this it's it's less about acronyms and and some tidy to-do list but more about like here's through story through real life experiences of myself or people I've coached or people that I know that will help you go okay I get it. I get that. I've been there. I understand that. And once we kind of scrape off all those barnacles, then you're at a point where you're at a platform and a baseline of some pretty high self-esteem where you can then go out and get what you want in life. But yeah, sometimes you have to speak up. And no, this is not about speaking up all the time. You've got to choose your battles. Confident people are nice. So if you know you have some you know, the loudest people in the room are sometimes the least confident. And that needs to be said. I, I you just stole my next question. So yeah. uh it seems like the mean girl kind of mindset, mm-hmm. right? Also, yeah. How many people project confidence as a deep cover-up of a of self-confidence issues? I mean, I think a lot. And the mean girl example is perfect. I mean, bullies, right? So bullies is right. it's a misuse of confidence, but it's not really confidence, right? It's just a it's a bluster or the guy that's like smashing his, you know, beer can on his forehead, rah, you know, or we know the person that's sitting around there bragging. Like, listen, that person's not confident because they care so much about what other people think they have to give their resume. That's a lack of self-esteem and insecurity. You know, and usually when you bully a bully back, they acquiesce and they shut down because they don't know what the hell just happened to them. Yeah, that's the kick them in the wherever strategy. So that's it, right. Is confidence really being comfortable in your own skin at its yes. core? Yes, I think it, here's the thing, you know, someone asked me once they, I put the story in the book, I had a person who did my facials and like most people that I meet, she needed confidence and, you know, we'd get to know each other over time. And then finally, one day I came in and she said, you know, I was thinking about you because I was, I went to like a party and I just feel like wherever, if I walk into a restaurant or I walk into a party, I feel like eyes are on me. I'm so self-conscious. I feel so insecure. I'm just like, ah. And she said, I thought about you. And I was like, I bet Elle doesn't feel this way. And then she goes, how do you feel when you walk into a place? And without hesitation, like before she finished the sentence, I said, I walk into every place like I own the mother effer. <laughs> and she, and, and now let me clarify that because it sounds really cocky. Yeah. But, but here's what I mean by that. When I walk into a room, a party, a convention, I don't care if anyone asks me anything about myself, I don't care if anybody knows what I do. I'm just comfortable being me. I'm open to conversation or not. I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. I don't even care if anyone there likes me or gets a good impression. I'm just open to whatever's there. And I want that for everybody to walk everywhere in this world feeling comfortable with who you are and, and your place in this world and, and in admiration of yourself. And this is not a cocky, self-congratulatory thing. It's just a true thing of self-love and self-worth. And so being comfortable in your own skin is absolutely the ultimate. That's it's where you want to be. Yes. That is, I mean, acting 
and the comedy background and stand up. I mean, that's a big part of that, right? I mean, I, I remember going to Second City. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> Some of the stuff that they they made it us is. do from a communication training. Well, and that's why I always suggest too, like actually one of the cheapest, best ways to increase your confidence is to take an improv class, even yeah. if you don't care about ever performing improv. Because Toastmasters, very... people always say too, right? That's a that really too. cheap I think yeah. improv's even better though, because yeah. improv is so awkward, embarrassing, and gross yeah. and weird. Because <laughs> you're like, you're there and you're like, I don't know, I'm trying to be funny. And it's not about trying to be funny, really, because if you know the rules of improv, it's really about following a story. So if you try to be funny, it usually fails. But what it is, is it's this really uncomfortable environment, yet a very safe environment to fail. In fact, most improv teachers worth their weight would start a class saying, look, everybody just say, I failed. You're here to fail. You know what I mean? You're going to fail. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. And that whole process really gets you out of your skin. And there's really nothing scarier than that. So once you come out of that, and that's a cheap way to do it. And again, if you had to get a social coach or something else, but yeah, Toastmasters or something like an improv class can really just get you out of yourself where you're kind of like, you lose that. I care what people think. You lose that you know, and that helps with everything in life. All right. So last question for you, and this can be, it can be singular or repeated, um, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? I would say that, so I am a very downtown Chicago, no BS personality, as you can tell. Really? I didn't, I didn't ask. <laughs> Everybody I, can I, tell I, that. I didn't pick up on that. And I do resonate with those people, but we speak kind of the same language. These are the kind yeah. of people where they call you and they're like, I got to go by. Click. Nobody gets offended, right? That's kind of like how I work. You know, you call someone up like, hey, yo, and you just get right into it. Well, what I realized over time in business and everything that not everybody operates that way and people can take that and be offended by it. They yeah. can see it as being not friendly when you are just kind of like down to business. Let's get to the point. And so I did learn that emails and phone calls to certain individuals take prefacing, right? So back in the day, I had a secretary when I used to be in the corporate world and technology and there was a secretary that worked there and I would just call me, hey, yo, Lori, do the, you know, whatever. And just, you know, not at all angry, just being myself. Yeah. And she felt like I didn't like her and she, you know, thought I was mean. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I realized after that, every time I called Lori, it was kind of like, hey, Lori, how's it going? How's your day? Good, right? Just preface it have a yeah. little bit of something and then get into it. Not everybody responds well to this no BS, let's get to the point. <laughs> so, you know, I've learned right. that that is really important to kind of gauge your audience that way. And also, you know, as you know, through emails, you know, you can't read tone. So if you're matter of fact, it can come off in a wrong way. So, and it's extra effort for me because it would be my inclination to just get right into it. So I do actually take the extra effort to be like, hey, how are you? Hope you know what I mean. Yeah, know, know your audience. Yeah. All right. Well, El, where, where can people learn more about you, your work, your books, and uh, your whole world? Yeah. Well, you can go to lrust.com. And then every Monday, I'm the host of the Primal Blueprint podcast where I interview uh, people like yourself, health, mind, body, and also just started a new podcast called Kick-Ass Life Podcast. You can go to kickasslifepodcast.com. And that's where uh, myself and another coach, Tara Garrison, we're just sort of talking every week about topics to help you improve your life and sort of encourage you and dominate. Let's get it. <laughs> I love it. I've noticed a theme between your books and podcasts and namings. <laughs> Some of them, there's a theme. All right. Well, Elle, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. It's, it's a fascinating discussion, and, and it's been really interesting to hear about your 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 journey and where you've gotten to today. Thank you so much for having me. So, listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate Podcast today. We'll include links to uh, L and everything we talked about and her work 
on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. And uh, until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.